I'm alcoholic. And uh, I smoke Camel Non filters. And um, I heard the announcement last night. Now, i got to tell you, I will sit through a meeting to hear any of you talk without smoking, but I'll be damned if I'll sit through a meeting and listen to me talk without smoking. <laughs> you know, I can stay home and jabber to myself, you know. So uh, I'll, I'll just ask your indulgence, indulgence and I, my sanity is by a thin true string and my concentration anyway, uh, without me inflicting that on you this morning. Um, I'm real tickled to be here, real tickled to be here. Um, I got to visit with Sean last night, and, and we got to catch up on 15 years, and, and it's very exciting if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the least likely person in the world to be a speaker. The least likely. This is the earliest, by the way, I have ever talked in my life. I mean, I said to somebody, I must be the women suffer too part of the program. Uh, you know, slip them in at 9 a.m., get them out of here so the guys can tell you how it works. You know what I mean? And uh, it takes me much longer, I assure you, to paint my face and glue things on and do all that, you know, pull it up, tuck it, roll it. Then it does, John. <laughs> you know, at least I hope so, John. <laughs> but, and, uh, but one nice thing about this this morning is you can have the whole thing over and still be asleep. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much my case, you know, but I don't know that you're not better off that way, you know. Um, last night when I was listening to Joe, Joe was uh, talking about uh, the spirit of anonymity and, and like so many other things in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was new. And one of my great blessings was I drank me up, and there was nothing left. There was no Marie Skinner. There was no... That mind that had devoured me since I was a small child was gone. I drank it up. And one of the great blessings was I didn't understand a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. But with the absence of that madness going on in my mind, things floated in to the point it had slowed down enough I would hear things. And I knew that I didn't know what they meant. I knew that. For the first time in my life, I knew that I didn't know what things meant. And um, I didn't know to ask, but I somehow also know, knew that they were important. And people used to talk about anonymity all the time. And I would listen at meetings when it was the spiritual foundation of all of our... I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing to say. It's, and then people would talk about, like, last names and stuff. And somehow I knew that there was a possibility that it had more importance than that. It's kind of like in the sixth step, in the 12 by 12, where it says, this is the step that separates the men from the boys. Now, it seemed like such a simple step in the big book, and it just seemed so easy that you just became ready. You know what I mean? And yet, well, for them to say, this is the step. It's, I knew that there was something big going on there, and I didn't know what it was. And I was sober some years, and I was sitting in a meeting, as I do often, as I do often. There are many people that the only means they go through are the ones they speak at. And I tell you, you can get sick from just hearing yourself real sick. You know what I mean? And, uh, but I was sitting in a meeting, and this guy got up, and he started talking about spiritual anonymity. And that's what our book refers to. Okay? And what he basically said was that spiritual anonymity is keeping the eye out of the message. And I hope that's a little bit of what's going to happen this morning, is that the longer I'm sober, the more I am convinced it does not make a damn what Marie Skinner thinks. It's tremendously important what Alcoholics Anonymous says. And that my job as a person in Alcoholics Anonymous who has been rendered sober for somewhere around 17 years and 10 months, is to hopefully, if I have done these things, and my own house is in order, if I have done these things, unfortunately you cannot talk about something you haven't done. So it becomes easier to talk about feelings, families, mama, daddy, whatever, my dog, my cat, my son, my whatever. Um, but if I have done these things, as laid out in the text of Alcoholics Anonymous, that what I will do is I will come here 
and share with you my experience in relationship to Alcoholics Anonymous, the program, and that it will come through me and not from me, so that in my son's son's generation, that the message of Alcoholics Anonymous will be given as purely and simply as it was given to me 17 years ago. That's my only, because see, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be gone. And hopefully, in generations to come, like Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob said, and, you know, that the deal's going to be here for them. And I hope that's what I accomplish up here for you this morning. I'm going to tell you a little bit of what it used to be like. I, um, uh, I was sitting with a friend out of Dallas named Jack Clary, and I got to tell you, I, I got a tacky story. My whole life is, is like a B movie, okay? And, and I sit around and I, 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 uh, listen to everybody talk about their fun drinking and God, for years, I mean, I just, I just didn't identify, I mean, it was like a trap, it just embarrassed me. My whole life embarrassed me. And I, I had a great obsession when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was that I could just be like the other people and just kind of be beige, like the wall. <laughs> you know, I just, like, didn't want to be who I was. And by the time I was rendered sober, I was dosed with the plain old wine so I could get well. That's all I wanted. And um, anyway, I was sitting with Jack and and they were talking about different stories. And I told Jack a couple of stories. And uh, this is when I was about 13 years sober. And he said, well, now, Marie, why don't you ever talk about those from the podium? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Jack just never came up. Just never came up. And, and different things. I'm not a, um, uh, you know, there's folks that if you hear them in Texas, you've heard them in Canada, and you've heard them in Hilton Head, and you've heard them in the only thing that changes is, the age of his children. And I'm like not one of those speakers. I mean, uh, you know, what you get is, is where I am today, and my perception continues to change. The text Alcoholics Anonymous in one of the stories in the back, uh, where it says in the foreword that the purpose of those stories is that you may read those, that you may read those, experience some identification, and say, yes, I must have this thing too. If they are not meant to teach us how to do it, it's just to inspire us inside that we might say, yes, I must have this thing too. And there's one of the uh, stories back there where a woman talks about how we must, how we must never get to a point in alcohol phenomenon where it's enough. That we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. And that's so exciting to me. Because yes, I'm sober 17 years and 10 months. Now, I got news for you. I was rendered sober when I was 23. Barring no interesting accidents, I may be around this camp for 50 years. You know? And so 17 years is a drop in the bucket. It's barely moisture. And I'm one of those people that's here for the late picture show. I'm not here for the matinee. I am here for the late picture show. I never, ever, ever, as long as I live, want to go back to where I came from. So, when, um, when Jack and I were sitting, I just went off on that, but um, when Jack and I were sitting, and I'm sure it'll come, I'm sure it's a piece of the puzzle, you don't need to worry about it, but, uh, and I certainly won't, because I'm still asleep, but um, these stories that uh, Jack told me about, oh, it also says in the, in the stories that we hope you don't consider these things in bad taste, and I hope you will take these things, these were the good parts of my drinking, oh, and um, one of them was a, a very interesting, I, I had a problem when I drank, and that's that I woke, woke up places I didn't plan on going. I, I, I just really didn't mean to. And I've heard people say they drank till they passed out. That was not my case. I always drank till I woke up. Because I don't ever remember <laughs> going under. I just remember coming to, oh, it was so awful. In this particular time, like I said, I, I went for a certain plan I'm going, and um, this particular time, um, I woke up, and my eyeballs woke up, I didn't, and it was real bright, bright light, and I was in a hospital corridor, and I mean, there were people, I'm on a gurney, and there are people walking by me in, in doctor's uniforms and stethoscopes, and there's nurses, and, and there's people walking by, and I don't know who they are, and everything's going... And I'm like this, and I just come too. And I looked down, and I was in that physical 
not even a sheep. Seriously, I was laying, and I I could not believe it. I'm in a hallway, and this little orderly or some guy walked by because he had a, a, you know, I don't know if he had a boom or what made me think he worked there or whatever. <laughs> and I came to it, and I got very indignant. And I said, bring me my clothes. And he turned around and looked at me and said, lady, you didn't come with him. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, I'm a very modest person. <laughs> you talk about being humble. I mean, I wanted that young man to do, you know, it was like, please. <laughs> and uh, the other story that I'd like to tell you about is that, um, Another time I woke up, it sounds like I didn't plan on going. <laughs> and uh, the Los Angeles General Hospital, now if they find you and you don't have any identification, they take you to your county ward. And uh, this is a particular time, I, I, I don't know if I tried to kill myself or, you know, like I said, I never remember going out. <laughs> I just remember, ooh, here we are. And this particular time, I came to an net ward, but it wasn't like a regular net ward. You know, where you can just like walk around and get pills and stuff. This is like a real nut ward where everything's like locked up. And, um, I mean, there were some weird people and I knew as a drunk, okay, this is before all these treatment centers and stuff. And I knew as a drunk that these people were weird. And I knew I did not want to be there. I, I knew, and because there's no other thing, I needed a drink. I really needed a drink when you come to in some place like that. I mean, if I did it today, I'd need a drink. I mean, seriously. And I looked around and I thought, oh my God. And, and the people suffering their feet. Now, I couldn't do this today if my life depended on it. And I mean it. And I have no, because it's so foggy. I have no idea. That was the lost word. And all I remember is I went towards the door and the thing was open. Now, don't ask me how, don't ask me why, don't ask me anything. Now, you know, for those of you who go to treatment centers and get to keep your shoes, see, what used to happen is um, we were issued paper shoes. Now, I, I don't know if any of you like ever wore paper shoes, but um, when you went in that word, they like put your shoes and stuff because they could be used as weapons. <laughs> and you were given these little green shoes, the little paper shoes that you slipped on. And I had my little paper shoes. And, um, and you know the gowns they give you with the back that's open? You know what I mean? And uh, that's what I was wearing. And, uh, and I got through this door. Now, this is downtown Los Angeles. And I had no idea how it happened. But I remember getting outside, and downtown Los Angeles is busy, busy, and there's people in suits and briefcases, and, and I'm just walking down the street in my little paper suit, and my rear end opened down, okay? And uh, not quite sober yet, I must admit. And I remember these two, the, the, this car pulled up, and it was two men. And they got out, and they, <laughs> like I was nuts or something, they said, Marie? And I turned around and said, yes. Now, this was my thought. I wonder how they knew it was me. <laughs> like everybody in downtown Los Angeles was wearing one of those nightgowns and paper shoes. And I, rem and I got the thought. I remember thinking, I wonder how they knew it was me. Now, that for those of you who are new or some of you lady alcoholics that never got that bad, I'm going to tell you something. If I could still be that bad and not and alcohol was still working for me because what happened to me when I got out of there is I was able to drink and it did drive the madness away. If it still drove the madness away, I would still be living like that. But the sad thing about when you get to that point, when I test in the doctor's opinion says the alcoholic will reach a point where it cannot differentiate the truth and the false. And his alcoholic life becomes the only normal one. See, what happens to you when you get like that is you don't realize you're like that. You know. And I just didn't understand how they knew it was me. And those were the good times of my drinking. You see, you're looking at somebody that needed an answer all of her life. All of her life. Since I was a small child, I was strangled by the manifestations itself. As far back as I can remember, I was absolutely strangled with fear, resentment, and remorse to the point that I thought it was me, and I didn't even know there was anything else. 
I mean, long before I had my first drink, I desperately needed an answer. And for some people, I understand that alcoholism is like a step down. That alcoholics anonymous is like a step down. In my case, it was a step up. Because I desperately needed an answer. And I believe today that my great blessing in life is that I have the disease of alcoholism. That I have the allergy to body, coupled with the obsession of the mind. Because the very formula for recovery from that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body has propelled me into a health and a life that I never dreamed possible and wasn't possible for this alcoholic. When I read the text, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it talks about people that were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Those are some strong words. People that are suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. People who treat other forms of traditional psychiatry did not work. Those are all me. You're looking at someone in Alcoholics Anonymous who is too sick for therapy. I needed a miracle. And the good news is, if you knew an alcoholic, Anonymous and you're feeling like that, miracles are available. Our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, tells us the age of miracle is not dead. And I was given a grace. And I live today freely because of that grace. I don't own any paper shoes. No, nor does anybody try to give me one, okay? So, let me get a drink. I needed an answer since the day I was born. The first answer I had was alcoholism. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I'm one of those fortunate people that alcohol scratched my itch. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it scratched my itch. It did the deal. It did the deal. See, I told you I needed an answer that I was absolutely strangled by the manifestations itself. I thought I was ugly and that nobody was ever going to have me. I thought if I ever did get a man, I'd have to hang on real tight because I'd never get a chance at another one. Um, Joe talked last night about crying at Symphony. When I was 13 years old, Elvis Presley came out with a very sad maudlin love song called I Can't Help Falling in Love With You. And I used to lay up in the bed and just sob over that song, and I never had a drink or a boyfriend yet. I mean, that was just the way I was. Now, I took my medicine for the first time in a place called beautiful downtown Burbank. Not bad for a little girl born in Georgia and raised in Oklahoma, huh? You know what I mean? And um, my first drink was bottled slow gin chased by a warm quart of coolers. What can I tell you? You know? I was with a bunch of kids from Lover's Lane, and they were, like, kissing and sharing their bottles and stuff. And I had made decisions based on self, which later placed me in many positions in life to be hurt. And I, I made a decision that I was so ugly nobody would ever have me, and that I was damaged good. I made a decision based on the person you see up here today. For whatever reason, she was not good enough. As far back as I could remember, I aced myself out of life. And those kids were sharing their bottles, and I took that uh, bottle of float in and that warm quart of coolers, and I went over the edge of the cliff. And I told them I was going over there to uh, look at the lights. And I, I drank that bottle of float in, and I chased it with a warm quart of coolers. And that's the way I drank. And used other drugs for the next nine years. I made two more brilliant decisions based on self once I found my medicine. And that's number one, if I could just stay loaded till I died and never love anybody everything would be all right. Because if you're alcoholic, you know that love and hurt too bad. Okay. Now, I mentioned to you uh, that I used other drugs, and before your mind slams shut, or those of you who are have used other drugs want to carry banners through Alcoholics Anonymous and act like creeps, I'd like to tell you something. When I was rendered sober, I was very, very fortunate that back then Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't multiple choice. You know. And uh, I got sober in a group. It was a real sick group. Uh, they call it the sickest of the sick. It's at, called the Allen Nest out in San Fernando Valley. And I'll be forever grateful those people were just as sick as they were. Because if they'd been a little bit weller, they might have sent me away. But they were just sick enough to believe that the power laid out in the 12 steps of this program could take that pathetic little 23-year-old girl and create a miracle in her life. See, they were just sick enough to believe that. And what they did back then, it wasn't multiple choice. Um, 
I may put a text in my hands and they tell me if I could find myself within the confines of that book that I too could recover. And I found myself in there. In the second chapter of the text, Alcoholics Anonymous, in their solution, it talks about the obsession of the alcoholic that somehow, someway, we're going to beat this thing. We're going to beat it. And you see, when I was introduced to drugs other than alcohol, shortly after those experiences with that slow gin and warm corticoid, I could kill the way I felt inside, but I wasn't going to end up like them, the alcoholics, my mother, and all of those people. And you know what? My hatred for my mother and her alcoholism almost kept me from recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. For, because for me to concede to my innermost being that alcoholism was a disease and that I did the best I could with what I had to work with, that meant I had to forgive her and concede to my innermost being that if I had a disease, then she also did. And I almost would have rather died than to have forgiven my mother. And the truth is, I went on to become much worse than my mother had ever been. Okay. So I tell you that, and all it was is, I don't, I, I mean, I shot heroin for nine years, and I don't mean I took my mama's money and came to AA with a sore nose. I mean, I shot heroin for nine years and drank good dark bourbon. And I was very insulted last night, Joe, when you were talking about 10 high. <laughs> I really was. Now, now, I enjoyed Jack Daniels, and I did drink it in front of other people. But, you know, when you just want to get there, wherever there is, you know, I'd rather have 10 bottles of 10 high than one of those Jack Daniels. I mean, I know i got a place to go. And, uh, you know, that's just the way I, I think 10 high is a wonderful thing. I mean, if that's where you're going... You know, if all you're going to do is vomit it out, what the hell does it matter? You know. Um, anyway, that was, I made that decision. And I pursued that career for the next nine years. And I did what I had to do in order to get where I was going to go. That's all. Never a thought. Never a thought. Did what I had to do in order to get where I was going to go. Um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about where I ended up. And my drinking career was real simple. It was six months out of institutions, six months in institutions, three months out, whatever the chronological deal. I don't know. I wasn't there much of the time. And um, But it was like in and out of institutions. And I happen to believe that the state of California saved my life. But I also want to remember the first time I went to an uh, institution. I'll never forget the first time I was in juvenile hall. I was absolutely terrified. I didn't even know anybody that had been arrested. Nice girls from the South do not get arrested. I had been to vacation Bible school. I knew right from wrong. I had carved Bibles out of ivory soap and all that stuff. And I was absolutely terrified. I'd never even known anybody that was locked up. And I never want to forget that the end of my drinking, I always had a few miscellaneous ones so that I could go home. You see, I'd reached the point. I could no longer differentiate the truth and the false in my alcoholic life. It had become the only normal one. It had become home. It had become normal to carry guns. It had become normal to hate every living human being to the point that I no longer experienced it. To see you all as the enemy. It became normal to see life and me as the enemy to the point that I no longer experienced it. It became normal to live in such terror that I no longer experienced it. It became normal to compromise myself to a point that I no longer experienced And that's all that happened in those places I woke up. I no longer experienced the compromise. And I want you to know that the allergy was so far progressed in me, and the need for an answer was so far progressed in me, that if it still would kill the pain, I would still be doing it today. But what happened to me being blessed with the progressive disease of alcoholism, blessed with the terminal disease, what happened to me is eventually it stopped working. Eventually it stopped working. I went in and out of alcoholics anonymous for five years, and it seemed like everybody in AA knew why I couldn't stay sober but me. You know those people that get up and walk clear across the room just to tell you why you can't stay sober, okay? Um, and then they even quit doing that. Are you just a loser? And here she is, and she'll be back. Or maybe she won't. 
I understand now why the people stopped talking to me, and it wasn't like I saw it for years that they had with me. I would like to believe that they had reached the point that they all saw me, that I was 100% hopeless, apart from divine intervention. No, it wasn't that they hated me. It was that they had done all they could do. And you see, each time I went in and out of alcohol, I was a little bit more baffled. That's the text says. I didn't know why I was doing it. I am amazed today in Alcoholics Anonymous when people say, well, uh, I had a slip, and, and now I'm back, and this is why I have the slip, and blah, 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 blah. The truth was, like the text said, I didn't know why I was doing that. You know, I wondered for many years in Alcoholics Anonymous why I didn't stay sober, and I wanted to. I am here to tell you, 17 years sober, that I wanted what the people of Alcoholics Anonymous had from my very first meeting. From my very first meeting, I was absolutely baffled as to why I couldn't have it. I did not know why I continued to do it. And I'm very grateful that when I was a year sober, I was way, way, probably I was in a room with 3,000 people, which I didn't do a lot. And when I tell you I was the least like, I'm the least likely person in the world to be a speaker, I mean, I never even knew anybody. I only went to one conference before, the second conference I went to, I was a conference speaker. <laughs> and it was only the second time I ever spoke in my life. And it's when I was five years sober. So, I mean, I didn't know any speakers. But somebody had let me sleep on the floor of their hotel room when I was a year sober, and somebody had given me a dress to go up there. And I sat in the back. I mean, I couldn't even see the man, except he had white hair. And there was almost a seam around him like this when he was up there, and the man talked about how God's kids could see when they could see, and they could hear when they could hear. And you know, I never did anything wrong in those years going in and out of alcoholics. Numbness. I just missed the trip. This wasn't my time now. And I will tell you this also, that never once in the five and I attended the very same meeting that I got sober in, never once in those five years did I live in the living, vibrant, all-inclusive, never-exclusive, in me, through you, all around me, a live, vital program of alcoholics tonight. Never once. So I've got to believe if you're new in alcoholics tonight, or you've been having a difficult time, just keep coming back, because someday, if it happened to me, it will happen to you. So just keep coming here, get your cup of coffee, Take your chair and don't ever let anybody take it from you. Most of all you. Most of all you. I'm one of those people that believes one day a sobriety for the alcoholic is better than none at all. So just keep coming. Keep coming. Expose yourself to the miracle. Expose yourself. Right? Anyway, I want to tell you where I ended up because it's real important. And the reason it's real important is by the time I was rendered sober, my worst fear in Alcoholics Anonymous was that I had just gone too far. That no matter what I ever did, no matter how many showers I ever took, no matter how many steps I worked, no matter how many ashtrays I emptied, no matter how many cups of coffee I ever did, no matter how much I asked like you guys, that I would never get that inside still talk to me. That I was just too dirty for Alcoholics Anonymous. That I had just gone too far. And I used to sit in a meeting, and I'd hear the ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous talk, and I thought I was the only one. You know, I know our book tells us, tell in a general way, and the truth is, if I get any more general, it won't be my story. But I sat there, and it seemed to me that the ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous had cleaned up their talk so much that I thought I was the only one. They would talk about their children. I would listen to them speak, and afterwards I would think, but did they drink? <laughs> I mean, I needed to know. You see, in my home group, they told me I was an absolutely beautiful child of God, that I was not bad, that I had a disease, and I needed to know. If that was true, why were you so ashamed? You know, the men got up and talked about peeing in linen closets, and I mean, all this stuff. Everybody would laugh. And I swore that if I was ever able to stay so, that someday, someday. Now, I had a county jail in mind, maybe a lady's 12-step house, maybe 10 people. I never dreamed of anything like this. I never dreamed of flying all over the country. 
I mean, that's like for good alcohol. You know? No, I mean, the people like with educations that just kind of became alcoholics. <laughs> Not for people like me. But I swore that if I was ever able to stay sober, that someday I would stand up with all the dignity that I believe only a spiritual experience can give someone. Because the truth is, if God could be for me, who could be against me? If God found me worthy of a miracle, who am I? You know what I mean? And I swore that if I ever was able to do that, that someday I would stand up and tell people where I came from. And it's the reason I'm here today. Quite simply, where I ended up was very cheap $10 dollars walking in the streets of Hollywood in an absolute state of shock. I ended up like that. Because you have to understand, other women end up like that. Women less bright, less pretty, from other homes. Not people like me. And what was worse was I was going to stop. Now, for those of you who are thinking, God, if I ever get that bad, please know that this was after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. This was not before. And the reason I ended up like that, the best description that I ever heard of an alcoholic, and many people know that I'm a book person, and that's simply because the book scratches my itch. Bill Wilson says, everybody believes in the horse that got him across the river. And that's the horse that got me across the river. But um, I... Uh, I ended up like that, and the reason I ended up, the, the, the description that I heard one time in a meeting is an alcoholic, is a person whom upon ingesting a drink loses the ability to care. You see, what had happened to me was I had lost the ability to care. I didn't care anymore. It wasn't that I couldn't make more money. It wasn't I reached the point I didn't care anymore. And I was only living like that because I genuinely believed I couldn't have this. I didn't know what was wrong. I thought maybe it was a deep psychological or a mental. <laughs> I'd had those. I'd known I was crazy all my life. I thought I was strangled with the manifestation of myself. What happened to me was I started trying to kill myself and I kept waking up. It's that simple. Uh, the test says that an alcoholic will reach a point where it cannot envision life with or without alcohol and calls it to something off of And so people wish for the end and that's what happened to me. And I kept waking up, but I was still alive, and I couldn't drink anymore, and I couldn't live, and it wasn't working, and this wouldn't work for me. And I got down on my knees, and I said what I believe was the first naked prayer I had ever said in my life. And by naked, I mean my outside match my inside. There was nothing in between me and me anymore. Nothing. And, and I didn't know anything about God, except my granny had told me that God could see and hear everything you were thinking. So you didn't play games with God. That's all I knew about God. And I got down on my knees and I went to this God that I didn't understand. And I said, listen, God, I've tried everything. I've been in private therapy. I've been in group therapy. I've been in Synanon. I've been to Alcoholics Anonymous. They sent me to Narcotics Anonymous. The people over there told me I needed a women in Alcoholics I've had the help of the greatest people, and they're all sober. And I cannot make it. And would you let me go soon? I just want to You know, that's what I mean by I can't be up. And it was through a very strange series of events that I ended up in another alcoholic's morning. And you think that I'd be thrilled I wasn't? Because it didn't work. This is just where you end up. It's not some place you go. If you're like me and you're suffering from terminal disease, who else wants you? Back then, Blue Cross wasn't like, you know. You know what I mean? You just end up with the drunks again, but you die. And I ended up here. And that's when I was at the nest. And the war was over, and I was And the way you got me, 17 years and 10 months ago, was that I now had amassed 70 felonies in the court, and I had jumped bail on all of them. Not because I was a big-time criminal, because I made an instance of myself. You know? This side of my face was black from a beating, another beating I don't remember. I was wearing a rib brace. I had no shoes, because my friends had written me off while I was in the hospital. I didn't own a toothbrush. And I had no meat. I saw it in stuff. Didn't know if I was straight or gay. Didn't know how I was going to make a living. 
I mean, y'all guys got no bargaining, folks. You know, any one of those things I've described to you, plus I have been making my living through prostitution. I was 23 years old. Now, 18 years ago, today, that's old. You know what I mean? But 18 years ago, that was something, especially if you're a woman. And I was pretty. Now, any one of those things were enough to make the people with alcohol anonymous nervous. But you have all of those things in one package? And I tell you, people just <laughs> And I'm very grateful that I had all of those things. Because you know what happened to me? I drank long enough and hard enough that I was no longer a credit to anybody's party sober. And it kept, I was so sick in the bottom of my head, what happened is it kept all the social members of Alcoholics Anonymous away from me. And what happened was left with a very few people that believed in this text and believed in the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And to this day, I don't know if they gave me that text that a virtue or they just wanted me to get away. Okay. And they put that text in my hand, and a gal named Jerry walked up to me, and she said, you know, Murray, because back then my name was Murray, not that I was booked. I just lived on the streets, and you had a boy's name, you know. And she walked up to me, and she said, you know, Murray, you can't stay sober. And I was so relieved somebody knew, because ever since I had been coming to AA, people had been telling me I could stay sober, and I couldn't. And she said, you're going to have to find a God of your very own that will keep you sober no matter what. Now, I will tell you, having studied the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I understand today that that is the basis for our whole program. But I, and that was the one thing I never tried. She said, don't ask him to help you stay sober. And like I said back then, AA wasn't multiple choice. And I was granted a grace that day. By the way, when Jerry told me to ask God to keep me sober on my knees, she didn't wait for an answer. <laughs> there was no, well, if you don't pray, then go on over here to this, or if you don't do this, then do this. I mean, they labored under the illusion that I did not want what I had, and I wanted what they had. And she just simply laid the spiritual tools at my feet and walked away. Now, because of a grace, I went home and I started doing that. And that is the only thing that I changed in the years going in and out. I also believe that I had been touched. It was my turn. And I used to get on my knees in the morning. And the AAs passed me from house to house because I didn't have any place to live and no family. Nobody wanted me anymore. It's like this guy Milt says, you know, by the time you're there, there's nobody left. By the time you need help, there's nobody left to help you. And the AAs passed me around and they put that textbook in my hands. And I slept on people's floors and... And I asked God every day to keep me sober, and I didn't believe it. Not for a minute. Somebody, somebody as scummy as me, right, God is interested. God is interested in the good people. Okay? And I got down on my knees, and I didn't even know how to talk to God. I mean, it's like, how do you talk to God? Now, get serious. And I'd get on my knees, and I'd say, God, God, God. <laughs> and then I tried the inside deal. You know, and I just really didn't know how to pray. And, uh, but I believed I didn't have a choice. Like the uh, textbook Alcoholics Anonymous said, I had lost the power of choice. And I hear many people in meetings today that still have a choice, because y'all guys say you do. You say, today I have a choice, whether I drink or not. And I believe you do, but I got news for you. As long as I had a choice, whether I chose, whether I could drink or not, I chose to drink. It was not until the disease had progressed so far that I had totally lost the power of choice. The human ego was smashed that God could then enter me and place me in a state of grace that I could see, hear, and feel and have something in between me and the obsession of the mind. Anyway, I did what they told me. It was not like I had a real bad, you know, real heavy social calendar like this weekend. I didn't, I didn't have nothing else to do. I wasn't working. I'm so I'm tired. And I kept doing that deal, and in between I was at meetings of alcoholics and I was, and they just passed me around and I read the text as much as I could with my eyeballs dancing, you know. But they told me the message was there. And um, I persevered with that simple prayer, God keep me sober. And I think, and I remember when I first began to pray, it was like, the words were like real loud. I mean, I could feel my skin, 
And I just, it was real dumb. I was like saying these prayers like there was somebody listening. And the room was really empty and everything echoed. And I continued to persevere. And I don't know if it was when I was six months sober. I don't know if when it was eight months sober. And I don't know when. But I continued to persevere. And at some point, when I got down on my knees, that room was not big and empty anymore. It was warm, and there was something there with me, and it had changed, and my words were being met. I get chills today when I talk about it, because I told you I had needed an answer all my life. It was me against the world. I was in total isolation. And to have something with me all I remember getting on my knees and going to this guy and saying, look, God, I don't know which one you are. I don't know if you're Jesus. I don't know if you're Buddha. I don't know which one you are. But I am real sick. And I've got to have the right one. (laughs) I mean, I I didn't know who I was talking to. And I became real childlike. And I understand today that those things are all graces. And someday... I mean, I look back now, and, and I remember calling him in when I was about six years sober, and the human ego had returned, and I was beginning to be plagued by fears, resentment, remorse, all that stuff. And I was so brain damaged. I would read the book. I didn't understand anything it was saying. And that original surrender, that feeling of the warmth and all of that, lasted me. I don't know what happened. It just seemed like I was placed in a miraculous, almost like where I was propelled into sobriety. And those things that had, had been totally unavailable to me that I could not see, hear, or feel began to happen. And I remember thinking in my heart, could it be? Could it be? Because I remember, see, by the time I was under sober, I wouldn't tell you guys how much I wanted to be sober. Because if it didn't happen, I didn't mind breaking my own heart again. But I was not about to let you know how much I wanted this thing. So that I began more and more just to do the action and shut up, not run my mouth. That original surrender lasted about three years, and one more time I was in a meeting that man with white hair. By now I'm, uh, I guess I was four years sober, by now I'm pregnant, <laughs> which is sick rack up. And I was married to a scientist. Now, I just find that hysterical, okay? <laughs> I remember my granny telling me, Baby, you better get some more education or Jim won't want to stay with you. He'll get bored. And I remember thinking, Tim is not with me for my education, grandmother, but, you know. And, um, anyway, I was at this meeting and the magic wasn't there anymore and the fears and all of that stuff was starting to go. It was starting to, the, the madness was back and this old guy with white hair walked up to me out of bigger than this room. And he looked at me and took my teeth and did like this. And he said, you lost it, didn't you, baby? I said, yeah, and I burst into tears. You see, drunkenness is an inside job, but sobriety is too. And for the first time in my life, I had been rendered sober and made to stand still so that for the first time in my life, I could get well from the inside out. The way I got my original sponsor, she walked up to me one time and she said, you know, Marie, you're a pretty girl. And that's a shame. Because pretty girls don't have to develop character. Not even in Alcoholics Anonymous. They get doors open to them. However, sobriety is a character-building proposition. And you're the one that's going to die. And she walked away. Because I knew this woman knew me. I told some when I was new, somebody said to me, oh, you're so pretty. And I remember saying to this person, if I had a zipper right here, and you could unzip me and turn my inside to my outside, I would be all twisted and deformed. And I knew it. And I'm here to tell you that my insides are probably, I mean, I'm 41 now, folks, and I didn't get much sleep last night, and I'm starting to, you know, they don't tell you to keep coming back, you're like, you're going to get old, you know what I mean? It's been real amazing to me. And, um, but I'm here to tell you, I'm probably prettier on the inside than I am the outside. You know, they promised me things here. They promised me things like a vital spiritual experience if I did certain things. That ideas and emotions 
and thoughts that had been the guiding force of my life would be changed. And I persevered. Yes, that madness came back and that man looked at me that day and he said, you lost it, didn't you, baby? And I said, yes, and I sobbed. And it was another grace from God. And he told me a story. How it's an original surrender from alcohol. When, see, I never did surrender. Alcohol surrendered me. He told me how that original surrender had lasted for three years. And along about four years of sobriety. He had to begin to learn to study our program so that he could begin consciously to do through the steps what the bottle had done for him. I told you, my great blessing was I drank me up. There was nothing left in between me and me anymore. And a grace of a power came through me, not from me. Because I was empty of self, the bottle had beat it out of me. Our book says that. And then from the moment I got sober, that old ego started to build again. And I'm about three and a half years sober, four years sober. I'm scared of this baby. I got this right. I'm this. I'm that. I'm the other. And I have spent the last 17 years and 10 months attempting through the steps to get as empty of self and get rid of as much of me so that that power might live through me rather than from me, that I might experience what the text Alcoholics Anonymous says on page 86, 87, and 88 about what used to be the occasional hunch, the occasional thought, the inspiration, gradually becomes a working part of the mind. How Bill Wilson talks about in his story, how therefore uncommon sense becomes common sense, or the other way around, I can never remember. Um, And I was told in Alcoholics Anonymous that I had lost my mind to come to my senses, and that God's powers, were not limited to my sanity. And the freer I got of me, the freer I got of me. I remember, well, I don't know, wait a minute. You, you guys, have, I have a friend named Jim Waring that says, if it weren't for brain games, I'd be too smart to make this program. Now, I, you guys know I looked at my watch when I started. Now, I, I don't, okay, so it was like quarter to, okay, so. Now I have to add, oh dear, this is very hard. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Because either, I, see, when I look out at you, I can't tell whether you're listening or you're like asleep. <laughs> when people are just, you know, and I may be here alone, I don't know. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I go to mental institutions where everybody's on pills. But as crazy as I was when I was new, I was told when God speaks, God listens. When the heart speaks, the heart listens. And what we have in Alcoholics Anonymous is something that transcends the synthetic knowledge of the world. And I have to believe that if I come here with my own house in order, that someone, someone will receive what their heart is desiring. Because it's the experience of my heart. Anyway, like I say, I was married to a scientist, which was really a trip. I was in a meeting one time, and I had terrible problems when I was first sober wanting to kill myself. It wasn't that I wanted to kill myself, okay? It was thought of, that I thought I had to, because I knew I couldn't drink and use anymore, but I didn't think I could live. And uh, I remember this one particular night that I was just so, the madness was on. I mean, I didn't want to kill myself, but I thought I was going to have to. And I, I, I was told when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous that the habits you build in the first years of your sobriety, like if, your feet, if you go to a meeting every single night and you learn to open that text for an answer, someday your heart and your head will be going to a bar and your feet will go to an AA meeting. And that's what happened to me this particular night. I knew it was no sense in me going to this AA meeting. I knew, I know what it is like to have my life depend on what happens at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, oh, they don't remember what we say. Don't you believe that for a moment? Because as crazy as I was, there are people's faces. I couldn't remember my last name or my phone number, but I can verbatim say when that madness gets parted and there was like nobody but me and and that happened this night. I knew it wouldn't work. But I went to this meeting hoping against hope somebody would say something. And if not, I would kill myself after the meeting because I would rather die sober than to ever drink again. Okay? And I went to this meeting and this guy got up and he said, you know, and again, I'm way in the back. (laughs) And uh, he got up to the podium and he said, 
If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, or for that matter, you've been sober for a while, and you're thinking about killing yourself, he said, if you decide to do it, he said, call it by its right name. He said, if you're under two or three years of sobriety, and you make a decision to kill yourself, call it by its right name. Don't call it suicide. Call it murder, because if you're under two or three years of sobriety, you will not know the person you killed. And I sat in that meeting that night and thought, oh, my God, is there a possibility that I don't even know her, that I never met her? Is there a possibility that what they're telling me in Alcoholics Anonymous is true? And I clung to that hope. And I am here to tell you, if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I never knew this lady before. Somebody that carries around pictures of her son in front of the confessional. You know, he's an altar boy that when he had six o'clock mass, I'd get up in the morning and go and cry. I mean, I know somebody who had a child. Sean and I were quacking up. I always thought kids were in a class with dogs. You know what I mean? And cats. I never understood why people had them. I mean, I was just passing through and I knew it. You know what I mean? And, uh, and here I was with this creature. So, you know. Um, we compared our, I, I saw Sean and I said, I said, listen, Sean, I just know you're dying to see a picture of my son. <laughs> he didn't ask. And he said, yes, if you'll let me show you mine. I mean, here we are. I'm 41 years old. I used to be the youngest kid in the room. The one people used to make fun of. The sick ones. The ones that curse a lot. The ones that don't have an AA program, they're going to get drunk because that isn't sobriety. And now I see people looking at me the way I used to look at the man with the white hair or the guy that said that. And how does that happen in the blink of an eye? How does that happen? I became a student of that text. I didn't understand and I continued to study and I continued to study. I want to tell you very quickly something that happened to me because I think it's real important. There was another time I said a naked prayer. And I'm here to tell you, I said five or six of those sober, and every time I said it, where there's nothing in between me and me and my soul screams, my whole universe has changed. I change. Okay? I, um, the first time I ever talked, like I say, was at a small group, and the next one was at Palm Springs Roundup. <laughs> Whoa! And there was like thousands of people out there, and I'd never told my story in front of dressed up drunks. <laughs> and I got to the part about being a prostitute and I wasn't scared or anything I just didn't have my medicine and I started crying and I don't know how long I cried I just cried all the way through it and when I finally opened my eyes there were like two, three thousand drunks out there standing on their feet giving me a standing ovation with their tears streaming down their face and that was the day I got to say thank you for alcoholics and I thought it was a one shot deal and I look, I said, look, see my little dress, I had little white pumps on and little pearls. Because I didn't know how to act. I just watched the other ladies and alcohol. I remember when I first started dressing like that, it's like being in drag. And my my um, first time I wore dresses, it was like there was too much air, like something was falling out or something. I was, I, yeah, it was all very, very strange. But I so much wanted to share with you. And I, and I thought, see, there's no way I can stand up and tell you a story like I came from. If I don't look like I don't live there anymore, there's no way. Because you won't hear me. You won't hear me. So anyway, I'm standing up there, and I thought it was a one-shot deal in life. And Within six months, I'd been asked to six major conventions in and out of the United States. I didn't even know about that stuff, okay? And what happened to me is by now I'm married to the scientist, and I've got the beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. And I start traveling in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was told the human ego would return. And I'm going and people are all over me. And what happened to me is I got introduced to an AA that I never knew existed. I really believed if you were 15 years sober, you didn't gossip. I really believed if you were married to your wife, you didn't go out with anybody else. I really believed everything you said. And I look back now and people say to me, how could you have been that dumb? Well, it's real simple. I had to believe that everything you were telling me about yourself were true. Because my life had been so ugly that I had to believe there was a different way of life for me. And I believe my God held me in the palm of his hand. 
and kept that away from me until, you know, it was my time. I got into and I started getting scared, and I started getting confused, and that old ego's returning, and I don't know. See, I was told that the human ego would return because of the recuperative powers. And I don't know if you're five, ten years sober, five, six, seven, eight, nine years sober, and it's your wife you're into or your husband or your job that's got you torn up inside and the fears are there and you're walking into AA trying to give it away and the peace isn't there and the ground glass is back and you're going through the motions and you're hoping, well, you're saying, well, I am sober six years. I mean, that is the method. Well, I guess nobody else is like, I mean, I walked up and asked you. I kept saying something's wrong. They told me, oh, no, you're doing great. Get out there and share. Get out there and share. It's getting worse and worse than nine and a half years sober. That beautiful husband, the scientist's husband, had gone back to drinking when he had a little over six years of sobriety. And the people in AA rushed in to love him and take care of him. I was hanging on by my bloody fingernails, and people were looking at me saying, what are you going to do about that self-pity, Marie? They were telling me to go to Al-Anon. Okay. And I got my second greatest blessing in life. Remember I told you my great blessing is that I have a terminal disease called alcoholism. And uh, what happened to me at nine and a half years sober after sitting at the right hand of Chuck Chamberlain, traveling all around the country, being everybody's little miracle girl and all of this, is that I got to, for the first time, experience the obsession to drink. I had never had it sober. And I always said that I believed my God had protected me because if it came to the bottle in me, the bottle would win. And for two months, every waking moment, I was obsessed with the thought of the drink, the insanity that precedes the first drink. And I was so caught up in what was going on in my life that I forgot to see the miracle. I was so I was calling it marriage problems. I was calling it low self-esteem. I was calling it everything but alcoholism, untreated alcoholism. And I got to experience the obsession to drink. And one more time, the heavens and earth parted and through a very strange... These were the thoughts preceding the drink. I won't ever go back to where I came from. My husband will send me to one of these hospitals. I'll be able to take down like the other lady. I told you they were looking at me talking about my self-pity. I didn't want to be sober nine and a half years anymore. I remembered when I was new and they said, kid, did you drink today? And I tell them, no, they say, then you're a success. I just wanted somebody to say that to me. I didn't want to be a mother. This child frightened me. I didn't know how to be a mother. I didn't know what I was doing. If I got drunk, somebody would have to help with this child. On and on and on and on. And I got down on my knees and I said that naked prayer. And what I said was I said, God, I no longer care. If I'm sober now, I know that's heresy and Alcoholics Anonymous. For me to have said those words was unbelievable. I got down on my knees and I said, God, I no longer care if I'm sober. I do not care about myself enough to live through this. However, if I live through it, if you keep me sober, I swear to you, I will tell your kids about it. Because, you see, I have worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am no longer so self-obsessed to believe that if I'm experiencing it, I am the only one. I am no longer, and through a very strange series of events, I ended up back at my home group, and thank God they, oh, Carl Jantz hadn't heard a word about fear of abandonment or deep psychologicals or any of that stuff. Thank you, God, that old man looked at me and said, Baby, resentment and self-pity by any other name. He still resented me. And he didn't condemn me for having it. And he went over and got the textbook. And he showed me in chapter 5 how it says there, sober, not drunk, sober, resentment, self-pity, fear. Resentment shuts us off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns. And for us to drink it, to die. Okay? And then it is at once followed by an effort to face and be rid of those manifestations of self. And you know what he did? He put a legal pad and a pencil, pencil and a piece of paper in my hand. And I wrote a, a, an inventory 
on all of my sobriety. I wrote an inventory from where I was at at 10, 11, 12 years sober. You see, I was so sick. I thought self-pity was if you felt sorry for yourself when you didn't have a reason. And I had a reason. I saw people in AA, liars, cheats, and thieves, never, never did a step in their life, wouldn't even take a 12-step call that hit them in the face. You know, I hear I was subjecting each sex situation to the test, still praying every day, doing everything. They were getting richer, they had wonderful lives, and I was getting sicker. And my life had turned to crap, and I even reached a point I didn't even believe I had a message in alcohol. And I put that all on paper, and this is the great news for you. And this is what I want to share with you. Is if the steps worked as well at that length of sobriety, if not better, than they did in the very beginning. And the obsession to drink went away. And I went back in. Not when... My son is 14 years old. Wears a size 11 and a half men's shoe. Oh! And Camp David is real thrilled about being 14 years old. Now, if Camp David had gotten to two years old, or three years old, and he decided that's all he wanted to learn in life. And he stayed at three, but his body's now 14. We call him retarded. And yet we in Alcoholics Anonymous only want to learn what we learned when we were three or four. And we were like, want to stay. And, and that old ego returns and says, oh, you've done all that stuff. I'm here to tell you that in my case, I told you I was too sick for therapy. And depending on how badly the body and the mind has been burned by alcohol, and the mind being the obsession that precedes the first drink, depending on how far progressed that is in you. When the big book Alcoholics Anonymous says, we have a way of life where we grasp and develop a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Trust me, if you're five years sober, ten years sober, you have grasped a way of living which demands rigorous honesty because you don't get there unless you have. It's the developing that never ends. It's the limitless expansion. Now, what has happened since then is I have never let my house get that. I stay much more current. I'm much more avid. And uh, very quickly, I will tell you how I began this morning. Okay, I have a sponsor. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, which means I will be at all the meetings this weekend that I came here not to talk to you, but to hear others. I'm a member, and I don't have to be nine and a half years sober. I don't have to be 17 years sober. All I have to be is sober today, and today's the day we don't drink. I used to hear people say that, and I thought, no, right. You know, I thought they were patronizing. The way I started my day off this morning, I'll just share it with you. So I get down on my knees. I say, dear God, I am powerless over the obsessions of my mind. Because you see, it was my husband. It was my marital partner. It was everything but what it was, which was alcoholism. Because I have a terminal disease. Other people have marriage problems. They just divorce over and over. I eventually drink and die because I have that allergy of the body coupled with the obsession of the mind. Okay? And that's my great blessing. Got up this morning, got down on my knees. I said, God, this is Marie. Um, just, I mean, I think he probably knows who I am, but it's important for me to know. <laughs> and I say, look, God, and this is Marie, just in case you forgot since yesterday. And I am powerless over alcohol. What that means to me is no matter what I ever learn in Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter what I ever learn in school or what I ever do, someday it's going to be the bottle in me and the bottle's going to win. Is what the truth, what the big book says. Sober. I don't know if it's going to be 15 years sober. Seven. So today's the day I got down and said, I'm powerless over alcohol. And Father, I don't know how to live. I've been by myself. I cannot even draw the next breath. Do you want to know what powerless is? And you think you're doing a job, a good, a good job at AA and you're sober because of what you've done. Leave this room and try to control your breathing. <laughs> I've been by myself. I cannot even draw the next breath. I still say alcoholic prayers because everybody believes in the horse thing. And step, uh, the, the third step and the seventh step prayers, I figure are the alcoholic prayers. And so I always put them in, uh, just, you know. And uh, then what I do is what uh, page 88 and 87 suggest. I get on my knees and I ask for spiritual brain surgery. 
Now, you can make fun of me, but this is real important to me. For years, my mind drove me crazy, and I had never read that when once we were clean, our house was clean, that we could ask God to direct our thinking. Okay? And so I subject myself, and I pray for spiritual brain surgery, that God would come in and direct my thoughts through me and not from me. And that I, it be divorced. Now, every alcoholic knows what a divorce is. Okay? Divorced from selfishness, self-centeredness, and all of that. Okay? I was told from the very beginning of my sobriety that heaven was just a new pair of glasses. I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about, today I can face reality. I want you to know something, and this is my great hope for you if you're new. If my reality were the same as it was 17 years ago, 9 years ago, or whatever. If when I looked out, all I could see was ugliness, that you had to get out there and beat it, you had to work the steps, you had to figure it out, you had to outthink, outperform, and outmaneuver every other living human being. Deacon misery, just get one rung up on that ladder. If that was what I saw, I could no more handle it today, sober 17 years, than I could back then. What Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is that through the inside shower of the steps, Alcoholics Anonymous has changed my reality. It has changed my eyeball. And so that little girl that so desperately needed an answer from the day she was born, that was absolutely strangled by self. Got down on her knees this morning. And then I came to you. And I hope I never stop doing that. I hope I never stop doing that. I love my life. I want to thank you for being here. Because, um, you know, if I showed up and talked to myself, you know, the truth is, I can't stay sober by myself. And my own, only prayer this morning when I finished was just to simply ask to be used. That's my prayer. Just use me, use me for whatever purpose. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thanks a lot.